Well, good morning again. Let us open the scriptures at Romans chapter 11. And what we're going to do is we're going to read the um, first 10 verses. And um, I'll just put a picture up there and a heading, which I will believe I have to explain a little later. But let's read the scriptures first and be taken up with what God has to say from them. Romans chapter 11 and verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have torn down your altars, and I am alone and left. They are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same manner then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. What then? What Israel is seeking, it has not obtained, but those who were chosen obtained it. And the rest were hardened. Just as it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor. Eyes to see not, ears to hear not, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a retribution to them. Let their eyes be darkened to see not and bend their backs forever. God add a blessing to his word. It's good to have um, more than my wife in my house at the moment and I brush this past Alex and he says, oh, Jeff, he says, I don't think they'll probably understand that. You know, you live in South Australia. They wouldn't know what on earth you're talking about when you say a yellow card or a red card. Now, I see Phil back there. He's smiling away and he knows what a red card or Alex because he plays rugby union, right? And he used to play it. And for those who have played soccer or rugby union or rugby league will definitely know what a yellow card or a red card is. And I'll explain it very briefly because it's, I pick it up in the message. Um, if you get a yellow card or if you're playing rugby union soccer and, you, and the ref holds a yellow card, that means you're off the field for 10 minutes. You've, you've had some misdemeanor or you've done something wrong or, or fouled or something in the, in the game, uh, another player, and um, so you're, you're sin bin. That's the word they use. You're put in the sin bin. Now, as some of us saw last night in a game, a player was given a red card. Not a yellow one, a red card. Now, that's serious stuff because he's sent off for the whole game. Whether it's in the first five minutes or what, he's sent off for the whole game. And it can even develop into a judiciary board banning him from the game for the whole season or even worse. So there, just a little bit of an explanation of my title, which I shouldn't have to do, but there you are, because we live where we do, that's what it is. And so, um, what has this got to Israel? Well, you will see what it has to do with Israel. You know, there's hardly a day goes by, is there, that we do not hear or read of something of Israel, modern day Israel, in our news or see it on the telly. 
When we think of this little nation, geographically a little nation that began with the call of Abraham back in Genesis 12, it's, it has throbbed its way throughout centuries, escaping annihilation, escaping genocidal atrocities by distant nations and by neighboring nations, and it, is, it has just gone on and on. Well, as we think about that, I must remind you that this sermon's not about Israel's foreign policy or particularly about its history. Um, but as we have read this text here today, and uh, as we have made our way through Romans and come right down to chapter 11, uh, we cannot help but ask a question ourselves. But what about Israel today? You know, because of her rebellion and rejection of Jesus Christ, has God totally rejected them with a red card or merely sinned them with a yellow one? Yeah, we can rightly ask that question because it may seem, it may seem that God has totally rejected Israel and that he has cut them off from the blessings that he unconditionally promised them uh, to, his, to their forefathers. You know, and this is the overwhelming question that the Apostle Paul addresses in chapters 9 through the end of chapter 11. What Paul does here, he vindicates God's integrity toward Israel. For God cannot lie, right? And as we have discussed in the past, God's covenant love for his chosen people, which began with a commitment in eternity past, it is a covenant love that will endure forever. And so as Romans 9, Romans 9, as we've looked at that, it speaks of God's sovereignty in salvation to the elect. In other words, God saves those whom he has chosen from eternity. And as we come into chapter 10, we see it takes a bit of a shift and a bit of an emphasis. Sermons chapter 10, it speaks of, of human responsibility to God's electing grace. In other words, sinners must believe the preached gospel in order to be saved. But as we think about that, we have, I hope we have come to the conclusion that both divine sovereignty and salvation and human responsibility and salvation are both true. But as we come to chapter 11, as we come to chapter 11, what we see here is God's present and future purposes for Israel, the nation, being put under the spotlight again. He focuses in on this. And so owing to Israel, the nation's obstinate unbelief recorded in the last verse of chapter 10, verse 21, we see how obstinate they were. What Paul does here is he launches in with this ongoing rhetorical question. He's kind of asked it before, but in a different way. Has or will God reject his people? In other words, has God rejected Israel, whom he foreknew and whom he has set his covenant love upon? Well, here Paul teaches us in verses 1 to 10 that we've read this morning that God has yellow-carded Israel. Okay? He's yellow-carded them. She has been sinned, but not disqualified forever. And from verses, God willing, next week we'll look from verses 11 onwards uh, towards 32. 
We see there he emphasizes that God's sidelining, his, his sin binning of Israel, it has a shelf life. Okay? Just like the player who's set off for 10 minutes, Israel, sin binning, their yellow carding has a shelf life. We will see that next week and um, because there will be a time when Israel's discipline will be over and you'll see that in verse 25 to verse 27 of this same chapter. But another question we might ask here is, so what? So what? If this chapter is all about Israel, what on earth in 2013 has this got to do with me? That's a good question, right? You know, there are many answers to that, but I'm just going to give you one simple one that hopefully will suffice this morning. And that is this. If there ever was living proof throughout history to this present day that our God can be trusted, one cannot get past the existence and survival of the nation of Israel. God has protected her folk like no other nation on earth. Israel's ongoing survival of extermination programs, you all know about the holocaust of anti-Israel governments of numerous wars down through the centuries into this present day that is against all. All these add up to what has rightly been described even by secular onlookers as nothing short of a miracle. I've learned in my research this week that even the United States of America's prestigious officer's school in the military called West Point no longer and do not study the wars of Israel because their victorious outcomes are deemed humanly impossible. Israel's God is still in control, folks. That's pretty awesome, right? And Israel's God's our God, right? We need to understand, folks, that if God defaults on his unconditional promises to Israel, he's a God that cannot be trusted. That's why Israel is important for one reason and relevant to us. And we have a faithful God, right? And we can rejoice in that. We can say, praise the God of Israel because he's our God. He has proved up until now and he will prove in the future that he's faithful. And because he's faithful, we can rejoice and we can trust him. And so Israel has everything to do with us because it is through Israel that God has promised what? He promised that all the families, and that is including us back in Genesis 12, 15 and 17, that all the families of the earth would be blessed. And here we are this morning, those who are born again by the Spirit of God, we are blessed. What? Because of Israel's God and through Israel. Because Jesus was born a Jew, just as was promised. And so, folks, you need to study and watch Israel because God's redemptive plan for man has always and will always center on this chosen nation. He has fulfilled all he said that he would do in her history and there is still a whole host of stuff that must be fulfilled with Israel in the center. Even amidst all their historical failures, you know, they're a bit like us, right? We fail God, right? as individuals and as a church and as whatever, and um, we fail him. Well, Israel's dismally failed her God, but even amidst all Israel's historical failures and sinful unbelief, Israel is God's nation whom he has disciplined and is still disciplining, but never completely rejected. 
Now, as we consider this chapter and these thoughts, it's important for you to realize that there is two main, there's many variants, but there's two main theological camps that Christians sit in. And, uh, and I know many from both sides, of course, and from the other side, from where I'm coming, many fine, fine people whom I love dearly. One camp holds that Israel has forfeited, and it's important you understand this because you will come across them and you will know them yourself and you may even be um, somewhere different from where uh, we sit as an eldership and as leaders in this church. One camp holds that Israel forfeited all her promised blessings by God when they reject Jesus Christ when he was on earth. And so what has happened, they believe, is that, or they hold that, now the church has replaced Israel. All the blessings now belong to the church, both Jew and Gentile. And so Israel as a nation and God's program ceases to exist. There's lots of names for this, but um, mainly it's a replacement theology. And, um, and so that camp sees no literal future fulfillment of Israel and God's prophetic program. That's very, very basic and plainly what that camp said. The other camp, of which I believe the scripture endorses, holds to a more literal interpretation of the future nation of Israel. This understanding sees God in a future day miraculously pouring out salvation, a salvation blessing upon the people of Israel as promised in Zechariah 12 and Jeremiah 31, 31, right? It's going to be a miracle, miracle, folks. There's going to be a mass salvation. In other words, and because of this literal approach, we hold that Israel being the only nation in the world ever, that God has unconditionally promised to bless, he will in a future day, he's going to take up that little nation, his people, and on that day, all that remains of Israel, and believe me, there's a whole lot of carnage going to happen before that day, all those who remain as a nation and on that day will be miraculously saved. Okay? Will be miraculously saved. You can read that in verses 26 and 27 on this very trap that we're in, and we'll look at it that next week. Now, I'm not here to persuade you of which camp you should sit in or which one you put your feet in. But I want you to allow Scripture to speak for itself as we delve into this chapter. And may the Spirit of God convince you of the truth of God. Okay? So Paul sets out to answer his own question in this passage we've read this morning. And what he will do will validate God's integrity regarding his ancient unconditional promises to the nation of Israel. And he does this in a certain way. He does this by providing three proofs, okay? Three proofs that uh, God's setting aside of Israel to this present day is only partial and not final rejection. Now, the first proof is personal proof, where Paul gives personal proof that God's discipline of Israel is restricted, and we see this in verse 1 of our reading. So Paul's first proof is that he himself is a Jew. I'm an Israelite. And just in case you don't believe that, I've got ancestry to prove it. I'm now a, but now I'm a, I'm a blessed, sanctified believer in Jesus the Messiah. In other words, what Paul does here in verse 1, he makes a clear statement in answering his question um, of has God rejected his people, he makes a clear statement by using, first of all, the strongest negative 
in the Greek language. He says, may it never be. Or in the King James Version, God forbid. Okay? In other words, he says, it's absolutely inconceivable that God has reneged on his unconditional promises. He says, after all, look at me. Just take a look at me. I am, or I was once, the most fanatical Christian-hating Jew around. I persecuted Christ's followers like no one else. I was a blasphemer and a violent aggressor when he told First Timothy. So if such a Christ-rejecting Jew like me could come obedient to saving faith in Jesus, the gospel has power to save any Jew. You see, folks, Paul's conversion to Jesus Christ was just like thousands of individual Jews converted before him. And there were many, because that was his job, remember? He wasn't part-time. He was fully employed in persecuting the church. He was buzzing backwards and forwards, in and out of the country, up and all over the place, bringing them to prison. And so Paul's conversion to Jesus Christ, like the thousands of Indian Jews converted before him, this fact alone made it obvious that God had not rejected Israel. No, as we think, the nation as a collective people are not here in view. But individual Jews in Paul's day and today can still know the blessing of righteousness that was promised through Abraham, through individual faith in the promised seed. And who was that? Jesus Christ, the Messiah. You see, God has put on hold. In other words, he's turned the clock off for Israel, his nation, in regards to its national promised blessing. He's turned it off. But he certainly offers salvation blessing to individual Jews, just like he offers it to Gentiles and like ourselves who have taken up on that, right? So as we think about this, I thought, oh, wow. By way of application, Paul, you know, what did he call himself in First Timothy? The chief of sinners. And yet he was blessed by the saving grace of God despite his arrogant, ignorant, religiously zealous heart of unbelief. That's the kind of guy he was. He was zealous. Oh, yes, he was religiously zealous, just like many of the Pharisees and the, uh, and, and the scribes of his day. So Saul, the Jew, who became Paul the Apostle, Jew, the chosen of God, he, what he did, he yielded his stubborn heart to the will of God, saving grace through faith. That's what he did. How did he hear that? Remember when he's on the Damascus Road? He heard the words of Christ. And this goes back to our last chapter. Faith comes by what? By hearing the words of Christ. There's no other way. That's the recipe God still uses in this day of saving people. They must hear the gospel. They must hear the word of Christ. They cannot be saved through a vision or a dream or whatever. Uh, it must be through the word of God, the word of Christ. It's the only recipe, no matter who. So there's no sinner. This is a comforting thought. It can be to us and it can be an encouragement to us as we witness and, and, and um, come alongside people. There is no sinner has sinned so much whom God cannot save. Don't give up on people, folks. They might be the down and outers. They might be at the bottom of the list or bottom of the gutter as you have 
as we might uh, consider them. But there is no sinner who has sinned so much that God cannot save. And Paul was personal proof that God has not rejected forever Israel. Our second proof that Paul gives here is remnant proof that God's discipline of Israel is restricted. In other words, we see this in verses 2 to the beginning of verse 7. You know, the more I read Scripture, the more I see the need to understand and get my mind around the whole story of the Bible so that I can trace its themes through the story, the redemptive story of God. Because what Paul does here, he shifts from a present personal proof of God's partial judgment of Israel to proof that is set in a corporate setting back in Israel's past, in Israel's history. So he moves from the present to the past. And he's got, he moves from individual, personal, to collective, okay? And he reminds us, he reminds his readers that, that God has only ever partially judged Israel for his sin and rejection of him. In other words, he says, God has not rejected his people whom he forgew. Okay, that's what he says in verse 2. God has not rejected his people whom he forgew. Here Paul is making a reference to the nation, by the way. He's not talking about individually. He's making a reference to the nation. The disobedient, obstinate people spoken of in verses, chapter, uh, verses 21 of chapter 10. This corporate nation. God has not given this nation a red card. He has not and will not completely discard those whom he foreknew. Now this same truth also can be applied to individual Jew and Gentile who are also foreknown of God too, right? And we've talked about that, especially back in chapter 8, verse 29. The same truth here is emphasized. It says, verse 8 and 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son. And we've been over that. But now, what Paul does, he has the nation in view. He has the nation in view. Because Israel, as I said before, is the only nation that God has specifically foreknown as a collective group of people and predetermined as a nation on earth to be his chosen people. He hasn't chosen New Zealand. He hasn't chosen Australia. He hasn't chosen America, even though many of them like to think that they they are. Or India. No. Israel. That's it. No other earthly nation, Israel. Why? I don't know. But God has this nation in view. Let's just read. Why is that? And uh, how is that? And uh, Deuteronomy chapter, verse, chapter 7, verse 6 and 7. You listen to what it says. What is happening here in Deuteronomy 6 is Moses is, is, Moses is addressing the nation, right? He's not just speaking to Aaron. He's addressing the nation as it was then. And this is what he says to them in verse 6 and 7 of chapter 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord, your God. The Lord, your God, has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. Verse 7, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest peoples on the earth. But it is because the Lord loves you and it is keeping and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. That's the reason he chose and he for you Israel. Now folks, 
Here we see why God cannot and will not totally reject or red card this nation whom he foreknew and set his special covenant upon forever. You see, if God reneges on his unconditional promises to this nation that he first made, by the way, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, as we've been studying Genesis, we've been really into that lately, um, his faithfulness and his covenant love toward them, it sure is going to lack integrity, right? And it tells us that his divine love that he speaks of, if he reneges on that, it cannot be trusted. But that has never happened, folks. It's never happened right throughout history. And you know what? It never will happen. A quote here from John MacArthur from his commentary, and he says this, From the call of Abraham until the day Christ returns in glory and judgment, there has not been and never will be a time when the earth will be without believing Jews. You see, this is why Paul takes his readers back into their own history and he says to them, hey, remember Elijah? Oh yeah, they would remember Elijah because Elijah was one of their heroes, one of their many. He says, remember Elijah? Well, just take a look at this guy because here is proof in your own history that even though things look bad, and they were bad back in his day, even though things look bad for the nation, God will always remain true to his promises. Take a look at this guy. And so then Paul quotes how Elijah, that's recorded, and you can read the story in 1 King 19 and 10, and this is where Paul gets it from. He tells him that this, about this great fearless prophet who became a very depressed, self-pitying whiner, I call him. Like we do, and we are sometimes, right? So let's not be too hard on him. But that's what he become. He was this great man. He loathed the fact that Israel was steeped in idolatry, was spiritually pathetic and apathetic to the things of God. And to top it all off, on this special occasion, he had pagan face-painted Jezebel after his hide. What could be worse than that, folks? That would depress any man, surely. Well, here, in utter despondency, Elijah cries out, Lord, they have killed your prophets, they have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. Woe is me. I'm the only one left. What was the divine response? We read this in verse 4. I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. God was remaining true to his word, folks. Here in history, God had his finger on Israel's pulse, can we say. And that divine protection is repeated over and over and over right till this very day. Remember the captivity in Babylon? It's another occasion. Wow, God gave them a good smack, didn't he? He routed them right out of the land. First the northern tribes and then the southern tribes, the city of Jerusalem. He raised up this servant of his called Nebuchadnezzar, a pagan, to rout them and to discipline them. But most of them still refused, even under God's disciplining hand, over those 70 years, most of them still refused to turn to God. But there was still a faithful remnant that remained. Oh yes. A few like 
Daniel? Remember him? Ezekiel? Lived throughout that time? Remember the three guys in the fire? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Other book, Mordecai and Esther? You see the faithful that were amongst all the unfaithful? This is the remnant. These are just a few of some of those folks that God in grace has kept and blessed in keeping with what? With his promises to Israel, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A little further on in Israel's history, we will um, come to when the Messiah born, their promised Messiah was born in Bethlehem. Here again, the rejecting, obstinate nation, he, they hated him. And the ultimate cry was, away with him, away with him. We will not have this man to reign over us. Crucify him. That was their cry. But look how amidst all this hatred and disobedience, God kept a remnant even before Jesus was born. Remember Zacharias and Elizabeth, his wife? They were faithful to God and to his promises. Then another couple that are super special, Mary and Joseph. Then there were others like the shepherds in the field. They rejoiced when they heard the news and they went up and worshipped him as a babe. But of course, as we move on, we cannot forget those Jews who believed and followed Jesus during his earthly ministry. Remember Jesus? He, 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 he led a ministry and he, and he taught and he preached and he healed. And there were many who turned to him. Oh yeah, true. The majority turned away even though they had wonderful things done to them. They forsook him and fled. But there are many that trusted in him. And as we move further on, um, we think of his ascension when Jesus went back to heaven. At Pentecost. 3,000 Jews, mainly Jews, came to the Lord. A little bit later on, another 5,000, again, mainly Jews, came to the Lord. And by the time Paul wrote this letter that we are reading now, there were hundreds of thousands of Jewish converts to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you tell me that there's no remnant? Absolutely. Absolutely. Every single one of these people who made up the remnant of Israel were God's chosen. They were, as we see in verse time, as at the present time, it tells us in verse time. It says, in the same way, there has also came to be, come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. Those are wonderful words too, according to God's gracious choice. In other words, as is true of all believers, these Jews are not a remnant because of their religious works or their racial descent or just because they happened to be geographically where they were. No, no, no. Or they had some good morals. No, no, no. It's because God's grace was upon them and called them. Because if it were something else, what the text tells us here, God's grace would be conditional. If it was something else other than that, it would mean that, that God's grace is no longer unmerited grace. But what we see here, God in pure grace chose them and God set his love upon them before they ever chose him. And this is what Paul sums up in verse 7. He sums it up by way of a question, another question. He's famous for his questions which he answers himself. He says, what then? What then? And then in answer, he contrasts, what he does, he contrasts grace with works. Okay? 
He says, what the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. See that? In other words, what Israel as a nation was seeking earnestly by keeping the law and keeping all these rules and, 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 and doing all this stuff and putting on the right clothes and wearing armlets and wearing things on the front of their what they sought so earnestly, they did not obtain it. That's God's righteousness. They wanted a right standing with God, but they sought it the wrong way. They did not obtain it. But look at the next part of the verse. The elect among them did. Praise God for that, right? How did they obtain it? We've had it. Chapter 10. They obtained God's righteousness, what? Through faith. By faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. The elect did. They obtained the righteousness of God by faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I want to read you a little extract from Charles Feinberg. Um, I heard his father preach once, in the, and, uh, but not this, he's, this is the son of the, of, of the, um, of, of the, obviously the father, Charles Feinberg, but they were both great men of God and, and scholars in the word. And Charles Feinberg once wrote a book, Israel at the Center of History and Revelation. And um, I, I want to read this because um, MacArthur quotes it in, his, one, in one of his commentaries, but this is from um, Feinberg's book, Israel at the Center of History and Revelation. This is what he says. Over a century or over a quarter of a century ago, a Russian Jew of great learning named Joseph Rabinowitz, I'll just say a rabbit, was sent to Palestine by the Jews to buy land for them. You got the picture? And he went to Jerusalem. One day he went up to Mount of Olives to rest. Someone had told him to take a New Testament as the best guidebook about Jerusalem. The Christ he had known was the Christ of the Greek and Roman churches who were his persecutors and persecutors of his people. But as he read the New Testament, he became acquainted with the real Christ of whom the Old Testament scriptures had foretold. And his heart grew warm. He looked off toward Calvary and thought, why is it that my people are persecuted and cast out? And his conviction gave the answer. It must be because we have put to death our Messiah. He lifted up his eyes to the, that Messiah and said, my Lord and my God. He came down from the mount, a disciple of Lord Jesus Christ that day. He went home to Russia and erected a synagogue for Jews and over the door of which was written, let all the house of Israel know that God hath made that same Jesus whom you have crucified, both Lord and Christ, Acts 2.36. He was one of the many present remnant of Israel which proves conclusively and better than words that God has not cast away his people, end quote. So what we've seen here is Paul gives a personal proof that his discipline is restricted and he also gives ongoing, a proof of the ongoing remnant that Israel's discipline is not total but restricted. And finally we see here that hardened hearts prove that Paul's discipline of Israel uh, is restricted. We see this in the second part of verse 7 right through to the end of verse 10. Now this is a very uh, difficult section um, to get to grips with. It was for me anyway. Um, but we do see that God restricts his discipline only to those of Israel who refuse to trust him. I want you to have that locked away firmly in your mind. 
And verse 7b to 10 says, but we, but the rest were hardened. That's the first part. But the rest were hardened. So after he talks about those who were chosen and obtained it, by, obtained it, but the rest were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. First of all, it's important to note here that the rest were hardened. That is, in contrast to those who were chosen or those who obtained God's righteousness and Jesus Christ by faith. Paul draws that contrast very clearly. So some were chosen and through personal faith obtained salvation while the rest were hardened because of their own rebellious unbelief. Now as we think of this word, the rest were hardened, you may not realise it, but it's written in what we call a passive voice. What that simply means is that this disciplinary hardening from God is from an outside power. Okay? In other words, it wasn't something that was totally and fully of their own making. This hardening of their hearts was from an outside source. And of course, that outside source is God. And how did he do that? We're told here. He gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see, not and ears to hear not down to this day. Now, as we think about that, as we think about that, we think, wow, um, it seems so unjust of a God who is love and he, and he offers, who offers mankind his blessing of salvation and yet here he is hardening hearts so that they become blind to the truth of the gospel. What's going on here? He imposes on them, as it were, some kind of a, a spiritual paralysis. So we ask, how can such an action be reconciled with God's justice? Or why does God prevent people from seeing and hearing truth when that is exactly what they need in order to believe? Paul answers these questions again, like he does, by quoting Isaiah 29 and verse 10. You see, Isaiah, the prophet, way back in Israel's history, on this particular occasion from where this quotation is taken, what he's doing is he's warning Israel, Isaiah is, that God will weaken you before the enemy attacks. God will punish you. And you know how he's going to do that, Isaiah told them? He's going to weaken you before the enemy attacks so that you will have no way on earth to stand up against them. God's going to do that. Because of your rebelliousness, your idolatry, and your hard hearts. And then Paul then shifts to another hero. Here, just lock that one away. Paul shifts to another hero of Judaism. David. And he kind of says, says the same thing here. You see, David also was, was in disgust and, and, and in deep heartache over the rebellious hearts of Israel. And, and he calls out to God with this imprecatory prayer. And he calls out to God. It's not something that we do. But he calls out to God, Lord, come and discipline your people. This rebellious people. 
discipline them with, with spiritual blindness so that they may not see the truth because they're just going on and on and on and on in their wicked and evil ways. And so he calls out and he says, and I'll just paraphrase this, may what these people value and treasure as their comfort and safety and place of celebration, like a mealtime table in any family home, may their comfort zone be the very thing that trips them up and blinds them to divine truth that is the only way of salvation. That's what he tells them. That's what he prays to God for. Now, that may sound rather harsh, folks, but how true, yet so devastating and sad that often the very thing that people become content, and even Christians here, be warned about this, how true that the very thing that people become content in, happy in, and love is the very thing in life that damns them to hell. Be it false religion, false Christianity, health, wealth, prosperity, type gospel, be it materialism, be it power, be it prestige, be it wealth, be it earthly comforts, worldly pleasures, be it whatever. It can be, it can be those very comfortable things that we find our satisfaction in, that we find our contentment in, it can be that those things become so embedded in us and we become so embedded in them that we become blind and spiritually paralyzed to the truths of God's gospel. That's a fact. That's true. But get this, folks. Get this. God only ever hardens the hearts and blinds the eyes of those who reject his gracious offer of righteousness. You see, God's hardening is always, God's hardening is always inextricably linked to those who harden themselves to his grace. You see, Israel as a nation, because of her rejection, has been hardened by God. She is still his special nation, yes, absolutely. But at present, she is ignorantly suffering his disciplines of spiritual blindness. They don't even know that they're being disciplined by God. They think they've got it all together as a secular nation. And many of their leaders today have just said, okay, they're secular, they're throwing away God, he's nothing. He's got nothing to do with us. So there's still an ignorant blindness towards their deep spiritual need. But praise God, there are those individuals who bow their stubborn hearts and obediently trust God's grace as displayed in the gospel, the same gospel that is for us. God's hardening discipline is restricted only to those who refuse to believe and remember that. And you know, even as Christians, I was thinking about this, we can refuse Him. We can grieve the Spirit of God. We can go our own way. We can find our comfort and contentment in all sorts of stuff rather than in Christ. Praise God that one day Israel's national blindness will be lifted. The yellow card time has a limit and it will be taken up. I love to see the player running back on the field. He doesn't just sort of walk slowly like that. No, no, no. When the yellow card time limit, man, he is full. He's usually laughing, he's grinning, and he's sprinting back to his position. Well, the nation of Israel will do that. What is left of her? What is left of her? 
in the coming day. All will be saved when God and grace appears again, when the Lord returns and, and, he, and he will remove the spiritual scales that are on that nation's eyes and they will as a nation. You will not see a mass salvation like you'll see on this day. They will nationally repent and all Israel will be saved as we see in verse 25 and 26 of this chapter. Zechariah 31:31 and Ezekiel 12. But that's Israel. What about you, folks? What about you as we close up here? Where do you sit spiritually this morning? You know, the same principle applies to us, you know. Exactly the same principle. Any person, get this, any person is trading on dangerous ground if they keep putting their own preferences, their own loves, their own ideas, their own plans, their own comforts, their own religious beliefs, their own philosophies ahead of God's gracious plan of salvation by faith. Dangerous ground. It can't be that God may one day harden your heart. Don't let the pleasures and comforts of the world, of your world, become a snare whereby you forfeit the table of blessing that God has prepared for you. And what a table that is, right? What a table that is. For the recipe is simple. The recipe is simple. God cares and looks after his own but withdraws his protection from those who withdraw from him. May God add a blessing to his word this morning. Thank you, Peter. Thank you, Jeff, uh, for that message. That's the key, isn't it? Uh, what applies to Israel applies to us as well. How are we going to react and respond to that message? Are we going to be hard or are we going to respond in submission to the grace of God? And uh, Our last song speaks to that. It says to make me a blessing to someone today, someone who possibly could be hard in heart, someone who could be res not responding to the grace of God, but um, as ones who have been blessed, as ones who have been chosen, we should be a blessing and seek to be a blessing to others. Shove your eyes and sing.
from Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask to think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.